Welcome to episode 31 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with more than eight years' experience in Brazil and China. This week, I bring you my conversation with Bopa Porn, a reporter with Voice of America's Khmer Language Edition in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. Voice of America is a U.S. government-owned media group that aims to bring accurate reporting to the world in support of democracy. It's famous for broadcasting over the radio into countries where there is not freedom of speech or the press, going back to its broadcasts into Nazi Germany during World War II. Bopa works for VOA's Khmer edition, which is a language spoken in Cambodia. If Khmer doesn't ring any bells for you, you've probably at least heard of the brutal communist regime of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, who were responsible for the famous killing fields. As Bopa will mention, with the government increasingly cracking down on free media in Cambodia now, Voice of America is a vital source for uncensored reporting there. If, after listening to this, you want to hear a bit more, I do talk to Don Wineland in Episode 4 about the eroding press freedom in Cambodia right now. Special shout-out to Don for connecting me with Bopa. As you'll hear in the stories Bopa tells in this interview, she's a truly brave reporter. In 2013, she won the International Women's Media Foundation's Courage in Journalism Award for her reporting on deforestation in Cambodia. She was accompanying an environmentalist when he was shot dead and feared she would be killed at the hands of corrupt police and soldiers. She's also a dogged reporter who goes with her gut, telling the story of how she hunted down a Russian pedophile in Cambodia when everyone, even her editor, was convinced that he had already fled the country. She also talks about what it was like for her as a Cambodian to live and work in the U.S. as a journalist for a brief stint with the Associated Press and ABC News. For someone without much formal journalism education, her commitment to analyzing writers, whether Charles Dickens or journalists working today, and dissecting how they did their work is very impressive. So now, without further ado, here's my interview with Bopa Porn, a reporter in Cambodia with Voice of America, Khmer. First of all, thanks so much for doing the podcast. Oh, my pleasure, and thank you for counting me in. Just to start, if you could set the scene a little bit for our listeners and tell me what time it is, where you are, and a little bit about what your work week has been like so far. So right now it's 8.16 p.m. time in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, and I am in the center of Phnom Penh City, capital city of Cambodia. And this week, I mean, my work why busy because I have to prepare some more like talk for the State Department because I was a Humphrey Fellow in the year 2017 and 18. So they just asked me to do a bit of a talk. So I spent a lot of time doing that. And then I was also preparing uh, because I also do a show which is similar to you. It's like a podcast. And we basically right now at VOA reproduce a book that's called 2040, a book that talk about the future of Cambodia in all aspects of what's happening. So it's from economy to education to journalism to other things. So I've been reading the book and preparing some questions and trying to talk to the writer about that. Yeah, and I also have some other work to do too. So I work on two story at the moment. Cool. And so just one episode about 2040 or is the whole podcast about 2040? No, actually, it's so it's two books, right? And there are, I think, four of us that covering this. So two Cambodian in Phnom Penh. So for me, I interview two writers that 
wrote two different topics. One is about a physical policy and the other one is about, oh my God, I forgot the other one. Oh, it's about industrialization. Okay. Is this also Chimer language program or is it in English? The book is in English, but uh, we produce a podcast in Khmer language so that the podcast is aimed to inform what in the book to the general public who could not speak English. That makes sense. And just for people listening, I'll obviously put in an introduction, but you work for Voice of America, Chimer. Is that correct? Yes, as a freelancer, a contractor. So I'm not their employees, but I'm one of their contractors. Cool. And just out of curiosity, the Humphrey Fellowship, that's with the U.S. State Department. What exactly is that? So it's it's part of Fulbright program. So they work with the State Department. So it's called Schubert H. Humphrey Fellowship. And every year in Cambodia, they pick one person that could do research or study on different topics from different major, from journalism to law to other major. It's a support of the mid-career people. So what did you study and where? Uh, I was studying journalism at Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University. Yeah, it's very famous. I know that one. Cool. Well, it sounds like you're having a, a busy week so far. We'll talk a little bit more later on about what you're doing right now in your career. But I like to find out how my guests got to where they are today in life. And I start way, way back at the beginning. If you could just tell me a little bit about where you were born, a little bit about what growing up was like and your early education. And if you started to show an interest in journalism early on as a kid or not. So I was born in Prevent province. Back then, the place where I was born, it's quite far away because Cambodia was like under this catastrophe for a long time. Lonol and then Khmer Rouge. And then after that, it's kind of like civil war between factions. So I was born there. And then in 1993, my family moved from Prevent to live in Phnom Penh. My mom put me at school in grade five. I jumped like two classes. I jumped grade three and grade four, and then I went straight to grade five. But I did not pass a class, so I had to take the class twice. But then I jumped grade six <laughs> to grade seven. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, yeah, and you know, just trying my best to go through school and pass the national exam, and then I went to university. Life as a girl in a big family. So I only got one sister who is about 10 years older than me. Mm -hmm. And I've got five brothers. Oh, wow. So, yeah, you may know culturally in a family, a daughter, even though you are older than your brothers, but your younger brother could still treat you like a younger sister. Check you out. Oh, why are you coming home so late today? What did you do? Right. So the teenager life's not that good. And because my family was not a wealthy family, so I had to have my mom and my sister with their business. So did not really get a lot of time to spend on homework and really studying hard. I mean, I wanted to, but the time did not allow me to do that. So I tried my best helping out and studying. That's my life. And I always wanted to be a journalist and I was say, maybe 10, 10 years old. About maybe 10 or younger than that, I don't quite remember. But when I was in Prevent province, so that would be before 1993, I remember that my sister took me to a pagoda. So 
in Cambodia back then during the 1990s, like early 1990s, late 1980s, not everybody has a television. But the place that you can see a world television or drama is the pagoda. So at that time, <laughs> the, yeah. So at that time, the pagoda near my house, they kind of carried the sand and the brick, as I remember, from other places through the boat. So the villagers around that pagoda, including my family, we were told to help out uh, moving the brick and sand from the boat up to the shore. And then we would have to try to bring that from the shore to the pagoda so that they can build more temple and stuff. And then at the end, as a reward, they would play drama for us to watch. And I remember mm-hmm. the time they played this video that I only remember this part because this part kind of like inspired me to be a journalist. So part of the movie was like this man who like wearing a um, journalist jacket. You ever seen that? Like the jacket that have pockets in the front kind of look gray. <laughs> Sure. You know, you know what I'm talking about. A little bit, but uh, I didn't know journalists had very distinctive jackets. In the U.S., people think of reporters' hats for some reason. <laughs> no, but I, I get what you mean. Yeah, the jacket. That's clearly somebody wear that. That must be a journalist. So I watched him, and he was like really active in the movie. He was trying to get information because at that time there's a war and bomb and the gun everywhere. So I remember that that journalist in the movie, he kind of like trying to pass this kind of a conflicted area and he had to jump onto a truck to try to get information. I was thinking like, oh, oh my God, that's inspiring. It made stuck in my head. And that what made me want to be a journalist. That's great. I find representations in TV and movies are often our first ideas of what jobs are. So I think it's pretty true that a lot of people see this image of journalists and they think, oh, I want to be that. But that that's a funny story. So when you were growing up, was uh, I've been to Cambodia, I've been to the killing fields and things like that, but I can't remember the dates of when everything happened and when there was war. And when you were growing up, was anything still going on or was it over by that point? When I was growing up, it was just like, I just remember one time there's a gunshot outside the house and then my sister got us hiding. And I found it fun, you know, I was like, oh, we're going into hiding. (laughs) That's fun. Actually, it's not fun. But there was still fighting going on at that point. This was the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, I think it was really late, late 80 or early 90, but I don't really remember. I don't remember precisely or what year it was, but I remember we went into hiding just like one time. That's it. And then we heard the gun like ping pong, ping pong. And which sides were fighting at this point? I had no idea. <laughs> I think uh, okay. I was too young. <laughs> gotcha. Crazy. So you're around 10 years old. You see this program. You've got to help out your mom and your sister with their business. Study's not a huge priority. So what happens next? Do you go to college? Do you study journalism? What happens next for you? So none of my family, both sides, my mom's side and my dad's side, work with the government or work in any institution that kind of led me to be a journalist. So I knew it's kind of like a long shot to be a journalist because I don't have any mentor or someone who would tell me you should do this to become a journalist. So after I finished my high school, I finished the high school. I mean, I thought that I should try to improve my Khmer language. So I applied for a scholarship to study Khmer literature. And then I got the scholarship 
But then second year, I found it really boring. So because, you know, like, I don't know why I feel like not much to do. So I quit it. And then at that year, I applied for another scholarship, which is uh, English literature with a private university, which had been bankrupted in like 2008 or something, two years after I got in. (laughs) It's not because it had no money, but because the owner of the school stole the money and ran away. He went back to Korean with all the money. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, we were freaking out. My friends and I were like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? We wasted two years of our time here already. What are we going to do? But then luckily, there's somebody who came over and took over the school. I guess it's already like they have the facility and they just like need to talk to the government or something. And then it's allowed us to continue my study. And Mm -hmm. I finished my bachelor degree in English. But funny enough, I only get transcript for the last two years. Because oh, the new wow. owner said that we are not responsible for your <laughs> for the transcript of your your first two years because we were not here. <laughs> but you still got credit to graduate. Yeah, so. yeah, but I got credit to graduate. Exactly. Interesting. And when I was in the second year, I was telling myself that if I want to be a journalist, then I should try to get a job, like maybe intern somewhere with the newspaper or something so that I could prepare myself for when I graduated my bachelor degree and then I become a journalist, right? So mm-hmm. that second year, I was also applying to study at a comedy department in Cambodia. And then I went to an exam and the exam is kind of hard because it has like three stages and I only passed like two stages and I failed the last one. So I end up staying in that English school. And then I was telling my cousins about the frustration that I have. I wanted to do something else. I wanted to be a journalist and that idea of becoming a journalist just fixate in my head. I was going around like crazy trying to ask people, how can I become a journalist? So one day I was so upset. So my dad had a farm about maybe like 15 kilometers away from Phnom Penh. So he had a pig farm. And then I went to look after the pig for him. And my cousins, he worked with this guy, an Australian man named Peter Starr. He was actually teaching at DMC. And I met him. Teaching at at where? At DMC, the school that I wanted to get in. Oh, okay, sure. So I met him at my uncle's house. And then he's a foreigner, so he's curious about, I guess, teenager like me, what I wanted to be, what I wanted to do. And I think he noticed that I like reading. And later on, my cousin told me that he asked my cousin about me and my background and stuff. So he, he told him that I wanted to be a journalist, but I find it hard to get into the job. But I never thought that he could help me to get a job or whatever. But then the next time I came back to the farm, at some point I was bored. So I went to fish kind of like under his house because his house kind of on the bank, like a stream bank. Mm-hmm. I was fishing under his house and then he told my cousin that he wanted to talk to me. So I went up to talk to him. And then first of all, he did not say like, oh, I got a job for you. I could help you or anything like that. Just said, oh, sit down. And then I sat down. And then he gave me newspaper, like a famous Cambodian newspaper. And then he asked me to translate it from Khmer into English because the newspaper was in Khmer language. And then I translated that newspaper for him. It's an article about Red Cross or something. So I mm-hmm. did. And then he said, ah, that's good. 
And then I was, I was asking him, that's funny. Why did you ask me to translate this newspaper for you? And how do you know if I, <laughs> I translate it correctly or not? Right. And then he's laughing so hard. And he said, I am the one who wrote the story. And somebody translated it into Kumai for me and get it published in this newspaper. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> After I translate that article for him, he said that, oh, your cousin told me that you wanted to be a journalist. And I said, yes. And he just killed me. He's a weird man. He's just so weird. He doesn't explain the reason or anything like that. He, he's like kind of torn a piece of paper and, and wrote down phone number. And then with just phone number and, and the name, that would be my first boss. Oh. <laughs> so a phone number. That's really funny thinking about it. Anyway, so he said, oh, take this number and then call that number on Monday morning. And then I think I, I don't remember how I got to the house, but maybe he also wrote the address for me. But I remember that he wrote the phone number on the piece of paper. So on Monday, I called that number and I said, uh, Peter told me to come here or whatever. So I went and then her name is Brown, uh, Brown Winslow. So she was a DPA, you know, Dutch press, agency, uh, Dutch press agency, right? DPA correspondent for, for DPA in Cambodia. Is it EPA or for European Press Association or is it? No, it's the DPA. So Dutch Press Agenda, I think. Okay, sure. Yeah. So she hired me <laughs> to be her assistant. And then, you know, she's like, I was not trained to be a journalist. And in Cambodia, we don't have resource about journalism. And like now, now we have like a lot of internet, a lot of books online and everything. But back then, it was in 2006, Cambodia did not have that many books mm -hmm. for me to read. So journalism was like, oh my God, up in the sky for me. So my boss just kind of like told me to read like a local newspaper for her. And then because Cambodian newspaper, mostly the front page is about love interest. Somebody killed somebody else because let's say a husband kill a wife because the wife have an affair or something. That would be a front page story. <laughs> or like traffic accident that kills this many people. So mostly love affair, traffic accidents, or big piece of, oh, the government have something to develop this. A lot of positive news about the government. So when my boss asked me to translate, I would try to pick like front page story for her because Purely, I don't know anything and did not have anything to read, did not have anyone to ask. My English was kind of like not really good at that time too. So when I told her about the front page, she would look at the newspaper after I translated for her. And then when she saw something like a photo or something, she would point it out and said, so what is this? And then I explained it to her. And then she would say like, oh, okay. And then she keep asking. So she does that to me every day. One day there was a story about a kid that, his leg was caught in an elevator in a very famous Cambodian market. So she said, all right, so what is his story? So I explained it to her that it was a story about this kid that has his leg caught in an elevator. And I said, oh, okay, can you go and do this story for me? And I was like, oh, a kid. <laughs> and I was like, huh. <laughs> how, how is this story become a story? And then she explained to me like, you know, women, they are not strong and women still fight for their freedom. So anything about the woman, you know, mostly interested. And the kids, the kids, yeah, and this is something to do with the government and security and the kid well-being and stuff. And then I was like, I remember that. I was like, all right, I see what you mean. 
So that's just an example. The other example, it was a, a story about a husband and wife who got divorced. And after they divorced, they cut their house into two parts and they split it. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, okay, you take the right part and I take the left part. And that story actually got published into a Khmer newspaper it's called the Cambodia Daily, which became the second place I worked as a journalist after DPA. I was with DPA for about two years or more than that, from late 2006 to late 2008. And then at some point, I realized that this job needs a lot of practice and you have to do it a lot in order to know it. You know, you have to write different type of stories so you get used to the story ID and you could write quickly and you could see the good angle quickly. So it's a matter of practicing and doing it a lot. So I told my boss that I was kind of like bored because I don't think this work is enough for me. Because as you know, DPA, they only took maybe like one or two stories per week. So I told my boss that I wanted a intern job at other places. And then my boss, I think, introduced me to my then new editor, Kevin Dual. He was a editor-in-chief at the Cambodia Daily. And then one day he asked me to come and see him at the office. He interviewed me, and I remember that I was 22 years old at that time. He asked me, like, oh, why you wanted to be a journalist, and how old are you, and stuff like that. I was like, I wanted to be a journalist because I wanted to tell the story of the poor people who have no way to approach the government. I wanted to have their voice heard, and stuff like that. I remember when he asked me about how old I was. At that time, I was like 22, about to turn to 23. But I was thinking that maybe my boss found me too young. So I told him that I'm 23. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then he said, all right, then act like you are 53. And my idea was like, oh, this guy is kind of like, <laughs> look at me. And maybe he thinks that I'm not capable that was just what I saw to myself. And I told myself that I would try to work my butt off <laughs> to prove right. him that I'm a decent journalist. So he put me on trial for like three months. He said, if you perform well in the next three months, then we hire you. And then I work for like, <laughs> I don't know, 20 something days. And then they hire me as a full staff. How did you find the work at the start? Did DPA prepare you well or was it very difficult going from DPA to Cambodia Daily like to do the work? Yes, definitely it's very difficult because DPA, they very picky about the stories, only like something weird or something really big or something to do with like governance. But at the Cambodia Daily, they would publish anything concerning people, welfare, their concerns and stuff. So from land grabbing to environmental topics to anniversary, any kind of historical moments, stuff like that. So it was a struggle for me, but I love it so much because I knew that I learn every day and I love, I love doing it. I just went to the office at like seven o'clock and sometimes stay at the office until 10 o'clock at night or sometimes 11 o'clock. At some point, I went to the airport to report about pedophile and I was at the airport until like 12 o'clock at night. It's not common for Cambodian women to stay outside the house for work until 12 o'clock. Right. And I guess two questions about that. First, I'm curious, what did your family think of all this? Because you said it wasn't that common for women to do things like this. I guess that's my first question, how they viewed it. 
It was a hard time for me, very, very tough time. Because when I was at the university, if I was not home at around 8 o'clock, 8.30, the latest or 9, my mom would call me, my brothers would call me, everybody would call me. Like, oh, where are you? Why are you still not home and stuff? It was really difficult. And at the Cambodia Daily, I had to also go to the province. So a lot of missed calls. You know, a journalist, you have to be on the phone all the time or you have to, like, spend the time to write story, right? So you don't have time to, like, answer the phone all the time. But because I would say I'm the youngest daughter in the family, so my dad, my mom, my brothers, my sister call me all the time. And sometimes 15 missed calls. And then I went home and they said, like, what kind of a daughter are you? You never answer your calls. And my sister's like, no one can say anything to you anymore. Now you have your own wings. (laughs) 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 So she was supportive, it sounds like. No, they're not not supportive. They're very angry. She she wasn't? It sounded like, (laughs) oh, you have your own wings. That could be a good thing. Yeah. No, when you have in Cambodian, when when people say you have your own wing, that's really bad. Oh, okay. That means you don't listen to anyone anymore. Or that means excuse my language, you don't you don't give anyone a damn, you know. Yeah. You just do yeah. your own thing and not care about your family member or other people. Huh. Okay. And my sister would be like, you know, we don't have the culture of staying outside the house until eight or ten o'clock. And every time I went back home, I would try to like, you know, quietly walk into the house and hoping no one got angry with me. So they didn't care so much that you were a journalist. It was more that it was the lifestyle of a journalist they thought was a problem. But they yes. being a journalist by itself wasn't strange or weird to them. Yes, uh, because my stories mostly when I was at the Daily, mostly published in English. So they never really read my stories. Uh, <laughs> I, don't okay. think, I don't think they had any idea about what kind of story I wrote about, you know. <laughs> so that was my other question. Were you general assignment, whatever you found that was interesting you would write? Or was there something specific you were told to write about? Sometimes I got assigned by my editor. Sometimes I just purely curiosity on different topics. For example, I read the story on the local news media about the orange in Cambodia. So in Cambodia, there's one or two provinces that are famous for orange that tastes really good. It's kind of sweet. It's more like a signature for that province. And then I, I saw in a local article that People in that province, it's called Badambong province, they could not grow orange anymore. And then I was thinking like, oh, this is weird. And what caused this orange to not grow anymore? And how can we we stop it? How can we fix the problem? And because a lot of people in Badambong province, they grow oranges. That's a big part of their job. So that would affect them a lot. So I told my boss that I wanted to go to Badambong and to cover the story about oranges. And he said, all right, you go to Badambong and cover the story about oranges. And it turned out to be a great story. (laughs) (laughs) What was killing the oranges? Uh, I think it's called silver, silver disease or something like Oh, it's called silver leaf. I don't know oh, why okay. it's called silver leaf, but when I went to talk to the farmers, they said that the oranges, they seem to be sick and the disease kind of spreading across the provinces. So the disease make orange kind of like small and, you know, like shrinking. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, it's not healthy. It's kind of like small. Well, that's a cool story to be sent out on assignment. 
um, yeah, to figure really, out this really... this mystery. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Okay. And Cambodia Daily is a English language daily. I guess I missed that one first time around. Now that I think about it, I think Don worked for one of them. I think Phnom Penh Post, but Phnom Penh Post and Cambodia Daily used to be the two big English language newspapers. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. And the Phnom Penh Post used to be our enemy. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So, but now it you know, the Cambodia Daily was shut down 2017, and then the post was bought by a private company, which is not, I don't think, you know. Yeah, Don the, said it's basically controlled by the government these days, it sounds like. Yeah, that's what i seen in the article, that somebody close to the government have bought it, and it's not the same anymore. Sad. Yeah. So how long did you work at Cambodia Daily? I was at the Daily for about six years. Okay, that's a good chunk of time. It was a long time. Yeah, yeah. But I learned a great deal from it. And so do you change jobs several times or you're always doing the same thing as a reporter? And then what leads you to leave the Cambodia Daily? I mean, I was really happy at the Daily. I learned so much from my colleagues coming from different countries, for example, like Don, you know, people like that. So they are reporters, like, they're one of the best one. For example, like Kevin Doyle, he's from Ireland. And then at the time, we have John Malloy, who I don't remember. He maybe graduated from his a law degree from Yale or Brown, but one of the good schools. And then we have James Ball, which is great. And we have Douglas Gillison, who had been working as a AFP editor for quite a while, but now he quit. So, you know, I got a chance to learn from those guys. But then I realized that at the Cambodia Daily, work is very hectic. So you achieve things collectively as a team. When I was at the Daily, this idea always popped up in my head that one day I has to rely on myself. So what if these people are not around me? What am I going to do? Because we work in pair with mostly foreigners and the newspaper published mainly in English. So, for example, if I work with a foreigner, most of the part of the story would be written by foreigners completely. So I just type like paraphrasing and quotes, even though sometimes I'm the main person who gets the information and stuff. But at the end of the day, I'm not the one who wrote the story. So I thought to mm -hmm. myself, that's not the good way to learn. I realized that writing is a big part of my job. So Kevin, Kevin Law quit the job in 2000 and. I don't know, maybe 14. And then the other new editors came in and I told my new editor that I've been here for a long time now. I need to try to write story myself in English. So I don't mind if I could write maybe like a 150 word story or 300 word story by myself. It's a good way for me to learn. But I mean, it's not his fault because the newsroom, as you may know, is very busy and they don't have time for you to do that. So I decided to leave. Because putting myself in a difficult situation, I think that would be the best way for me to learn. The same as when I leave the DPA and join the Cambodia Daily, I was struggling at first, but then I became better and better every day. So I quit the Daily and right after that, I got a job as a foreign correspondent for Asia correspondent for a few months. And I also asked to teach at the PUC, one of the universities. So I was teaching journalism for a while too. I made my way, you know, I wrote story myself. I report story, I wrote my story, but 
I miss my colleagues. It was lonely, but I learned a lot. So, who, who were but, you working as a correspondent for? You said you were Asia correspondent for. for yeah, who? it's it's called it, it's called Asia correspondent. Oh, the name of the publication was called Asia correspondent. Yes. Course. Yes. Okay. Yes. What was that? It's more like an online website. I'm not sure if it still exists. I haven't seen an article from Asia Correspondent for a while now, but it's like an online news outlet about gotcha. Asia. Okay. So were you the only person for them like writing about Cambodia and they had different people in different countries? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. So I was covering story for Asia Correspondent in Cambodia. But they have like limited budget, which is fine. But like I said, I want to do more journalism. But I think they only took like maybe two to four stories per month. Because I was like, I always look out for somewhere else in a similar fashion, but take more stories. And then I got an award, Courage Journalism Award in the U.S. Sometime, I forgot what year it was. And I met the chief of VOA Khmer in the U.S., and then he invited me to his newsroom and then one of his reporters interviewed me about my job and my award and stuff. So I was talking to them. And then, What was the um, award? It's called Courage in Journalism Award. It's from IWMF, so International Women's Media Foundations. Okay. Courage in Journalism. Was it for a specific story or for your career or for... Yes, yeah, so... I was covering, there's a lot of stories, so I was covering <laughs> corruptions in an NGO and I was detained with my editors for a few hours. That was a small part of it. And then after that, I was covering environment, like deforestations, illegal logging right. in Kong. You know Kong, mm-hmm. right? It's a province on the border between Cambodia and Thailand. Mm-hmm. So I got shot at in 2012. One of the guys who took us there, an environmentalist, he got shot dead. I mean, he died instantly in his car. And another military guy also dead too. Wow. While you were with them? Yes. I was in the car too. I ducked down really quickly, but the guy, he was sitting in the front you know, so I did not see who shot who. I only heard the gun shot. And I was on the phone with my editor-in-chief updating him about the intense situations. And we were about to leave because the environmentalist guy was trying to start the car. But then he got shot and I heard the gun. So I ducked down and then ran out of the car really quickly. And wow. uh, my colleague and I, we were stuck there we were not allowed to leave, and we were with a bunch of, you know, military and police who has guns. And we had to be with them, like, I don't know, for an hour or something, I forgot. But it feel like a long, long time. And I thought that I would die. And, like, suddenly I was thinking about my parents, and I thought, oh, my God, I hope none of this will be published in Khmer newspaper or on my radio otherwise my parents would know what i've been doing all these years that's what i thought and then oh my god i i thought i would be dead so i wrote my editor's phone numbers on my belly and just hoping that somebody gonna see the phone and call my editors because he spoke my mm-hmm. i mean he speaks my yeah yeah and so you were afraid that so it was more it, you weren't being held by police 
or the military was like a militia like uh, no i was i was i was being i was being told by them not to move and not to go anywhere i was had to stay there but so it was I, like it was like criminals or it was like military i wasn't sure what you said or is it illegal loggers or do you have any idea who the people holding you were it's more like uh in cambodia it's this weird thing that sometimes military police or at least back then 2012 you know some military police and policemen work for you know some i don't know powerful people and stuff Right. Okay. Corruption and that sort of thing. Yeah, that happens in Brazil. At the time, those policemen and military police they got the land uh, for uh, somebody. I don't know who. I was hoping to write a story about it, but then I don't know whose land is it because I lost my observation and I don't want to think about it anymore. I could do something else, but not that stuff. Until now, I don't know whose land it is. Huh. And it's been deforested. Yes, we actually just covering story about yellow wine that was cut down, and in Cambodia it was illegal to do that. And we took photo and we went to interview some people who doing the work. But then those guy came in and said like, "What did you do there?" And then we had to give them like our memory and stuff. Yeah, everything. I mean, I mean the, I mean the, yeah, the camera memory. Well, that sounds like a horrible experience. And that was for Asia Correspondent or for Cambodia Daily? No, that was when I was at the Cambodia Daily. So okay. the award is basically was given to me because I did not quit the job after the shooting. My boss Kevin Doyle, he wrote, I don't know how he learned about the information, but after I got an award, he told me that he listed our name, so my name and my colleague's name. He wrote a how you say it like nomination letter. Yeah, for both of us. But then the IWMF only gave it to me, so I don't know why they didn't give it to uh, my colleagues or less here. Huh. And so you went to the U.S. as part of receiving that. And yeah. By, by this point, you were already working at Asia Correspondent, but they and this is how you met, presumably, no. a future boss. <laughs> uh, no, actually, I met my future boss when I was at the Cambodia Daily. But then I think he came to Cambodia or something like that, and then he asked me to meet him again after I quit. So after I quit the daily, I was working for Asia Correspondent. But my future boss, who is now my current boss, he came to Cambodia. So every three months or six months, he would come to Cambodia to just check out the office and see the operation here, how it's going, and stuff like that. Catch up with stuff. So I met him in Cambodia. While I quit my job and was working for Asia Correspondent and, and taught at the university, and then he did not ask me that he wanted me to work for VOA at that time. Also, a local TV also approached me and asked me to work for them. But there's some condition that I, like I don't want to do. I don't want to do that. So what happens next? So then after that, my boss. Chris, he went back to the U.S. and then I was thinking that I would take this job at a local TV because perhaps I could learn some TV journalism. But then my boss, my current boss, now he called me and he said like, "Oh, I would like to hire you to work for VOA and stuff." And I was like, "That's great!" So I sent him the CV and bank account and everything, and then I started working for VOA since then. So when did you go to the U.S.? For the award, I went to the U.S. sometime in 2013. I think it was late 2013. 
maybe November, I forgot. But then I quit my job at the Cambodia Daily in 2014. It would be like July or something like that. But you had said you had worked in New York. Oh, yeah. So, for a couple different people, right? For Yeah, AP. yeah. So 2014, so I quit the Daily at around June or July 2014. And then I got a job at Asian Correspondent. And at the same time, I was a fixer for Swedish National Radio and Al Jazeera too. And then I was teaching at a university. But then late 2014, I was hired by VOA to work as a feature writer. So I worked since then. I started from early 2015. I started writing story for VOA until 2017. In August 2017, I got a fellowship to study in the U.S. from August 2017 until April 2018. And then after that, I was working as an intern for AP in New York for six weeks, writing story about political exile and other people who uh, escaped uh, arrest. And after I finished the intern at the AP for six weeks, I worked for ABC News for about seven months. And then I came back to Cambodia last year in March or February. And since then, I started working for VOA again. Gotcha. And for AP, when you say political exiles, there's still political exiles. I, sorry, I don't know the political situation right now in Cambodia. Yeah, so I could send you some stories after we talked, but some opposing party, they has been pressured and their party has been shut down, dissolved by the government, by the court, because they say they committed some kind of treasons. And so there is a president and like deputy president, so the deputy president or whatever. His name is Sam Rengsi. He's still in France. And the president, his name is he's in Cambodia, but he was in jail for a while since 2017. Basically, a month after I left Cambodia, the Cambodia Daily newspaper was shut down and opposing party leader was arrested and put in jail. He was just released from jail and he was put under house arrest last year in November. And now he's still under house arrest and he's not allowed to do any kind of political activity or anything like that. And then other members of that political party also had to escape, and many of them still outside the country. And yeah, we'll talk about Cambodia more in a sec. First, I just wanted to ask, how did you find working at ABC News and working as a journalist in the U.S. in general? And yeah, how did you find that experience? I don't know if because I'm not maybe because I'm not like covering politics or I'm not doing investigations, but I find it surprisingly easy. Oh, you know? huh. <laughs> yeah, like anyone talk to me in Cambodia, I have to back them and call them like at least three or four times. But in the US, people were open and just talk to you. Oh my gosh, in the US, people always want to talk to you as a journalist. I mean, not always. In some rare cases, or maybe two or three cases, they don't want to talk to me. And so at ABC, I counted the article that I wrote. I produced like 260-something articles. <laughs> that's a lot, wow. right? Yeah, yes. for seven months, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, so I wrote story, and really that people say, I don't want to talk to you. Maybe, like I said, two or three cases. And then when I approach people on the phone or even email them, in Cambodia, you send out like 10 emails, no one responds. Or you call them, they pick up the phone, they hang up the phone on you. 
in the US, that never happened. Unless the line cap itself, they call you back or you call them again, they answer the phone. For the government, from NASA to big company like Apple or like whatever company, even the airline, when you email them, they respond to you or they would say, all right, we're going to respond at this point in time. And that, my God, is a, I don't know what to say, but that's, that's really happened in Cambodia. Yeah, no, I mean, I worked in China. I'm like, yeah, nobody wants to talk to you in China about anything. Yeah, it's very difficult. So yeah, in Brazil, it's very easy. It's so much easier. And I imagine in the U.S. is similar. So I might have gotten mixed up. I always see ABC News and I immediately think ABC, the U.S. TV channel. But was it that or was it Australian Broadcasting Corporation? No, you were right about it. It was like an ABC TV broadcast channel. Oh, okay. Their website. Yeah. Yes, but they have like a digital group, digital reporter. So I was working with the digital group. Gotcha. And so, yeah, that sounds great. What made you decide to go back to Cambodia? First of all, I was homesick, never been away from home for that long. So I left home in late July. 2017 and I came back home uh, it was like mid-February 2019 the first time I was away from home and the longest time before this time it was in Germany I was in Germany for about two months or three months and it was the longest time for me but that was okay but this time it was way too long for me you know I miss home I miss my family I miss my colleagues And a lot of things happening in Cambodia, it's kind of like broke my heart. The fact that I could not see what's happening, but I only get to read news and talk to my friends over the phone, you know, frustrating. Mm -hmm. And my partner, when I was in the U.S., he was in Hong Kong working for Coconut. (laughs) I was not happy about it. Yeah, and then he quit his (laughs) job. And then he came to the U.S., he joined me in the U.S., but then it was hard for him and also it was hard for me too because I would have to apply for longer visa, whatever, you know. And it would be also hard for him too. So, And I also miss my family and stuff. So we decided to come back home. Sure, that makes sense. And I think I'm more useful in Cambodia than in the U.S. Yeah, because what were you writing about in the U.S. mostly? Yeah, mostly I wrote about science, which is amazing because in Cambodia, no one really writes about science. But in the U.S., I got a chance to write about science almost every day. And that makes me really, really happy. So the science part, I would write about bumblebee. I would write about insects. I would write about even like NASA sent some robot to sky technology too. all kinds of robots. And I was really, really crazy happy because there is no way you can do that here in Cambodia. Not a chance. Interesting. So I learned so much. Cool. Okay. So that catches us up almost to present. Just real quick before we get into talking about a story or two, for people who aren't that familiar with VOA, even though it is American, I feel like even a lot of Americans aren't too familiar with it. So VOA is Voice of America. I believe it was big during starting back when like World War II and it was a way of spreading pro-democracy and things like that. And it is supported by the U.S. government and it still exists today. It probably is actually stronger actually in other languages. So like you work for VOA Khmer, which is like the Khmer language 
edition of it. You know, it can be important sources of news in other countries, even if Americans themselves don't necessarily listen to it. So I guess I'm just curious, tell us just a little bit about what your work is like at VOA. And you told us about the podcast and stuff like that. But how is the coverage that VOA does different from what you might get elsewhere in Cambodia? We all working at VOA in Cambodia here. We are lucky in a sense that we can write anything we want without censorship. We can pitch any stories to our boss. If it has like a good information that we can produce into Khmer piece, so the piece that in Khmer language, Cambodian language, and also in English, or we could even make it into a video piece, then our boss would agree to that. Unlike a lot of media in Cambodia, they don't really produce the story that kind of reveal what happening underneath the surface. So for Voice of America, you can pitch any story and talk about any story. I mean, right now in Cambodia, there is an active censorship, right? It's more like they've shut down or bought the two main English papers. It sounds like there's more of a chilling effect of the opposition has been almost legalized and things like that. But for a journalist right now in Cambodia, is there active censorship or is it more just self-censorship if you're at some other publications? Journalists have fled the country since 2017, at least five of them, I think, because they cracked down on the media. So two reporters from the Cambodia Daily have fled the country. A bunch of reporters from Radio Free Asia have fled the country too because the government said that they report something that's not accurate or lead to some trouble for them. And two reporter was put in jail. That has a really bad impacts on journalists in Cambodia. Gotcha. And I mean, you would think they would get angry with you guys because you publish in Khmer language as well, but they leave you alone, it sounds like. I think yes, more or less. Now, for me, honestly, they keep, you know, to prove that they are not authoritarian country. They have some free media and the Cambodia Daily already shut down because of some sort of tax evasion issues. And the post was bought, so independent media is gone. Radio Free Asia, two of them in jail. The office of Radio Free Asia got shut down too. So there's only Voice of America and then this local Voice of Democracy that still exists trying to report the truth, but it's a struggle. Yeah, it sounds like it's getting more and more difficult. So I guess now we should talk about a couple of stories. So I like to start with the story that got away, a story you had wanted to do, but were never able to for whatever reason. Does something come to mind? The story that got away was a story about this Cambodian-American man who had a good position with the U.S. government, but then he was accused of fraud. And I wrote a story, the last story for the Cambodia Daily before I left it, about some of the people in his group were arrested in Cambodia and put in jail for scamming other people and stole like a million dollars or something. And I wanted to do a follow-up story on him and actually I pitched it to my editor at the time I was working with ICIJ. Is it ICIJ? 
uh, international yeah, journalism. So. Yeah, yeah. So international consortium it, of investigative journalists or journalism yeah, yeah. or something like that. Yeah, because a scam is like kind of like a web of people. There are many people involved, and then I pitch it to the editor at the time. He's like editor at ICIJ, but he's now an editor at AP Global Investigative Desk at AP. So I pitched that story to him maybe three or four years ago, 2015, I think, or 16, before I went to the US. But then he told me that one of the guy who had a high position in the US assembly or something, I forgot, he committed suicide, jumped off the building and killed himself. But I got information from my source that the scam still spreading in the US, especially in Cambodian community. And I wanted to follow up on that. But then I it just, I don't know, at some point it's gone away. I pitched it to my editor at VOA. He said, it's too complicated. It's going to take too long. It's too much energy. And he said, I should not work on it. But then until now, I haven't had a chance to work on it. And I feel like the story kind of lost its sense of I don't know, but I think it's a really important story. This broad scheme is still going on as far as you know? I'm not sure, but perhaps if that guy's still outside. It's a group of uh, people. Do you know what sort of scam is it? So basically, at that time, they came here and they said that they're going to buy rice or something, but then they need this much of money from each people who want to do business with them. So some people lose like... $100,000. But then I talked to them off the record because they didn't want to reveal their name. They said, it's a shame that we have this big business, but then we were fooled by this group of people, you know. But then they said, oh, this guy, I remember that they have good name in the U.S. and he used to live here and he's kind of a role model in Cambodia. But I don't want to say the name because I could be in trouble. Because we haven't have anything to prove that that guy committed anything. Right. Yeah, that's not a problem. So next, if you could take a story you're proud of and tell us a little bit about it and tell us how you did it from start to finish. There's this story that I'm really proud of, and I think that it reminds me that sometimes most of reporters think that editor grades and we should always take editors' advice. But you got to understand that sometimes you have to go against the currents to get something good. It doesn't mean like our editor is bad, but journalists, when they cover stories for a long time, they kind of build this kind of journalistic instinct that tell you what's going on, even though people around you tell you otherwise. So I did the story on this pedophile, Russian pedophile, and then he was arrested for molesting children, many children, and he was put in jail in Cambodia for a while. He was supposed to be in jail, as I remember, at least like eight years or something, but he was in jail for like quite a short time, and then he was released. And I was thinking like, that's not right. But then the government who has an authority to release him said that he has been doing good in jail. But I've been talking to some people and they said, no, he was being a gangster in jail. So he was released. And then I talked to the spokesman of the government, interior ministry government. And he told me that the guy have left the country already. He checked the immigration system and he said the guy has left the country. And then my boss, my editor-in-chief, told me that he heard from his source that the guy went to South Korea. And then I thought to myself, that can't be happening. He's a really bad man, you know, and South Korea is a country that have really good, good system. I mean, at that time, I thought that he must be somewhere in Cambodia. But then my editor told me to drop the story. He said, he's out. He's not in Cambodia anymore. I wanted to believe that, but... 
part of me told me that he's still here. Now there's something inside me told me that I have to chase it. I have to do something about it. So mm-hmm. I was contacting this NGO. It's more like a child protection NGO who gave me some hint about the last time they saw the guy and some of his friends, right? So because I knew that my editor told me to drop the story, so he would not be happy if I go to him and said, "Hey, can I have some budget because I want to go to the province?" But I did not do that. So on Saturday and Sunday, I spent my own money. And I asked one of my colleagues, of course, it's not safe to do that story by yourself alone. So I asked one of my colleagues and told him about my plan if he wanted to join me. And he said, yes. So we both spent our own money and we went to the province and we chased him. And then I went to the province. I went to Kampung Saum and I met one of his guards. So at that time, he gave the government like 100 million of dollars to build this huge bridge in the coastal area. So I went to that bridge and then I talked to the guard, more like undercover, you know. I didn't tell him I was a journalist or anything like that. I was just like, Wait, oh, uh, this is a beautiful. Yeah, the I was guard? just like, oh, this, yeah, the guard, security guard, because it's more like a construction huh. site. Okay. It's a huge bridge. It's like $100 million of dollars. And this Russian guy was financing this? Yes. So I went Strange. to the okay. guard. I was, I was saying like casually, like, oh, this is a beautiful bridge. Who built this bridge? And he's like, oh, my boss. And I was like, oh, your boss? Where he's from? And he's like, from Russia. I was like, oh, from Russia. Have you ever met him? And he's like, yeah, he came here yesterday. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. my God. But then I was like, I almost lose my shit, you know. I was like, oh, my fucking God, he's still here. I was so happy, but I did not have concrete evidence. Right, yeah. But I saw like that's enough to make my boss happy. Yeah, that's enough to tell my boss. I have somebody tell me that he's here, right? And it was crazy on that province. I was trying to like track down his friends, went to the restaurant that his friend used to go and just see if he came and hang out. And uh, went to the restaurant in Phnom Penh too to see if he hang out here too. But nothing, that piece of information from the security guard at that bridge. And then I came back home and I told my boss about it. I was thinking, oh, my boss is going to be happy. <laughs> and then he's like, uh. <laughs> and then he's like, Bupa, that information that you got, can you even write it into a story? You can't. And you can't even prove it. How can you prove it? I mean, I was upset, but at the same time, I was thinking like, he's being reasonable. I got this thing and I did not tell him that I was a journalist. There's nothing I could prove that he's still in Cambodia. So I was upset. And my boss was a bit upset with me too, the fact that I went to the province without telling him that I went to the province. But I mean, like, I called him on Sunday and I said, uh, I'm sorry, but I came to this province to follow this pedophile. And then I met his security guard and he told me that he's still here. Can I stay here one more day? <laughs> Can I go back to the office on Tuesday or something? He said, no, get your ass back to the office right away. And I was like, all right. <laughs> So I went back to the office and then my boss was upset and then I was upset with myself and I was a bit feeling uneasy as well. And then I was sitting at my desk wondering what I should do at around like eight o'clock. And my desk was right in front of my editor's desk, just like one meter and a half from each other, but just like right in front of each other. And then at around 8 o'clock, I was still hanging out at the office, kind of upset. And as a journalist, you always want to make your editor proud of you, right? Right. (laughs) At around 8 o'clock, I saw him pick up a phone and he was talking. He hung up the phone. 
he looked at me and he said, Bupa. And I was like, yes. And then he said, the guy you're chasing, he's just in the shopping mall right now. It's just the next block. And he was shopping near my office. It's <laughs> just one block away. And the editor heard this from a source? I mean, luckily, one of my colleagues from that newspaper, the lady who went to the forest with me, she went to buy some milk or something. And she saw him <laughs> in that supermarket. But because she never met him in real life, she only saw him on a photo, like because of the news and stuff, right? So he, she called my boss. And also, it's not, it's not working time anymore. It's eight o'clock. Everybody going home, except some journalists that try to finish their work. So my boss told me that. And then quickly, I grabbed my recorder. And then I went to tell my other colleagues who went to the province with me. And I said, Ben, take your camera. And then we went to that market. I said, Ben, get in and then take the photo. So he went in and then he took the photo and then he came back out. And then he showed me, he said, is this him? And I was like, holy shit, that's him. But he was so skinny. And he's so crazy. That guy's so crazy. He wear the same T-shirt when he was arrested. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But it was way skinnier. But then I was like, I didn't want to take risks, right? Because I also saw him only on the photo. So I went to the car park and then I checked his plate number because I knew what his car model is because I've been trying to track him for like almost like a month now. And I also remember his number plate, his car number plate. So I went to see the car in front of the shop and then I was like, holy shit, this is his car. <laughs> So I was waiting for him, like, just right in front of the car. So I was waiting for him there. I asked him to confirm his name. I said, are you Mr., let's say, ABC, right? And he said, yes. And I was like, oh, so I'm a journalist from Cambodia Daily. And the NGO worried that if you stay here, you will be harmful to the children. He looked like he's about to explode. And then he said, no, I'm not that guy. And then I asked him again, asked him the second name that he has. And I said, so are you Mr. Alexander Trophimov? And he did not say anything. <laughs> he just closed <laughs> the door and he walked away. He walked away from his car for about, I don't know how many hundred matter. But I told my colleagues to wait. I said, he's going to come back. So he walked away. So I, I did not follow him. And then he came back. I think he thought that I would leave because he walked away. But I told my colleague, okay, Ben, how about you ask him a question now? So Ben came in the same spot and asked him a question, but he did not answer the questions. He got into his car and drove really fast, just really quickly. And then I called the NGO that worked to protect the children and I told them like, oh, I see this guy if you want any information. I don't know what they did, but I heard that there's a guy who's driving the motorbike to chase the car, but they got lost in the middle of the way. Anyway, the next day we had a story with a photo. And was then, it front page news or? No, it was too small to be a front page news, but we posted the photo on the front. Ah, uh, yeah. Actually, I forgot if it's on the front or inside, but I think two weeks after that, because we keep calling the government every day and we have the photo to prove them that we saw the guy in Cambodia. And two weeks later, they arrested the guy and they sent them back to Russia. That's what I told you. I was at the airport until 12 o'clock because I wanted to see with my own eyes. <laughs> he was put in the airplane and deported to Russia. Yeah, wow. That's a hell of a story. Yeah, that's a great story. And do you know if he was ever punished back in Russia? Yeah, he's in jail. Okay. Yeah, because sometime later, I remember that my colleagues who had me write the story, he wrote a story about Russian media reported about him because he's a rich guy in Russia. 
So mm-hmm. they reported the court sentenced him to how many years in jail? I forgot, but he's in jail. That's good. So wow, yeah, some results from your story. Concrete yeah. So not yeah. often a journalist can say that. Okay. So yeah, uh, the next part is more fast-paced questions. I call it the lightning round because I don't have a better name for it. Do you feel ready for that? Yeah. The first question is, what is a must-read publication that you look at almost every day? I mean, like being honest, I should read my story in Cambodian language the first thing in the morning, but or even during the day, like pay more attention on that, you know. But because I don't really trust the news that publish in local media, so I just look at the headline mostly, and then I look at the government website to see what they posted because in Cambodia they post something right away if they think that the government decide to do something and also the government prime minister h u n s a i n prime minister Facebook page but the media that I read the most is New York Times because I like their style a lot and the other one is a New Yorker I like this lady in particular her name is Rachel Alvis. I think she's one of the best writer I have ever read, and I always wants to be like her. But I think it's very, very hard. What's her name again, and what is she known for writing about? Her name is Rachel Aviv, and she mostly writing about social issue, like social issue. Adley, who was ripped off by some sort of company, she also write about medical, like people who sick. Like what it means to be dead, something like that. Or she writes story about people in jail for unreasonable reason. Many other stories that you read it and then you realize that my God, this is the best story I have ever read. And if all the journalists has the ability to write story like her, it would be fantastic. And then the next question is: What is a publication you read, listen to, or watch just for fun? I like this really like crazy investigation video. It's kind of addictive, but I really like a lot. It's kind of entertaining, but it's great. I mean, it's a good journalism too, but it could be like eye opening. It's called Refinery. Refinery. Yeah. I know it's... Refinery 29. I don't know which is about oh, yeah, fashion. Yeah, but... yeah, yeah. Refinery 29. Yeah, I like that one. Okay, it's about fashion. Is that right? Yes, it's about fashion. But they do investigative videos. Yes, because for me, it's like. Women like me put on makeup, and then I had no idea before I watched that program where the makeup come from and what effect it has on other people in like developing countries, for example, like India. There's a video about this one called Maika. It's really good. Also, I like watching some short video from New York Times and from PBS as well. The Frontline one, I love it. It's amazing. Cool. Those are good recommendations. Just um, to kill the time, you know. Right, and then the next question is just slightly more specific. What is the best journalistic article piece? Again, TV, radio, text, whatever that you've consumed recently. I would say this story about the woman in Yemen, starvation in Yemen. It's published on AP. It's a fantastic, fantastic story. I mean, I read it like maybe a year ago. Already, but I read it again like just a month or two ago because I wanted to remind myself how good it is and to look at the way the writer wrote the story 
So I remember how the story was shaped in the beginning. So the story kind of talk about starvation in Yemen that caused by war, and it pictures mother and a baby. And the crazy things about this story is that the writer is very, very smart because he was talking about the lady that starved. So the writer, I don't know, it's a he or she, but the writer is smart enough to talk about. The rope on the lady and also the lady herself or together did not even weigh to a number a kilogram that a proper healthy person would weigh. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. So that would be a fantastic story, I think. And then, is there any particular subject matter you read or learn about that isn't specifically related to your job? Everybody know Charles Dickens, right? Charles Dickens. Famous. Oh, Charles you know, Dickens. Like, yeah, yeah, Charles yes, Dickens. Yes. So I think his book. It's like I think the way he put words together into a sentence, and the way he kind of stressed something that he see and he makes it more clear. I think it's interesting that we as journalists can use it in our story. So. The thing is that I get some sort of story idea from him. I mean, entertain myself from his story, but at the same time, learning his way of writing, and I can kind of imitate it. You know, I haven't read much Charles Dickens at all, but I remember at the start of A Tale of Two Cities, there's mm. an anecdote where a wine barrel explodes on the street, and all mm-hmm. of the Peasants run out and they're all trying to scoop up wine into whatever they have, bowls, cups to get mm-hmm. it. And then I remember years later reading a story about Africa, and it's got an anecdote that reminded me so much of that, where an oil tanker broke down and was leaking, and all of mm-hmm. the local residents come out and they're scooping up oil because the gasoline is worth money. And yeah, yeah actually. Actually, I read that one too. I remember the part you said, like all the people came out and scooped the oil. But even though it's such a random, small story, because of those parallels, it always stuck with me for some reason, and very yes. much like I felt like I was there when I read it. I think so. I just remember one page of his story called Half Time. If I'm not wrong, there was a scenes about students and teacher, and then the conversation were talking about how the teacher disagreed to the student, and then he said something in disagreement, but then he kind of like narrated in a way that the disagreement showing through the expression of his face, so his mouth and his cheeks and his eyes and his eyebrow twitching or something like that. So it gives more color to emphasize that he's really disagree. You know, I like it a lot. It's cool. Yeah. The next question is: How do you manage your work-life balance, or do you even believe in it? I don't believe in it. I mean. There's time that I would work like crazy, and there's time that I feel like, oh my god, this month I could only make like three stories. I can't go past that, right? But then there's time that you could do so much that you could go on every day and produce just piece after piece, piece after piece. The next one is: Is Twitter important to you? It is very important to me. It's informative. You mostly use it to gather information. Is it popular in Cambodia? No, it's not very popular. Facebook is very popular in Cambodia. So Twitter for you is it mostly to look at foreign news? 
Yes, for some time I, I know what's happening in Cambodia, but I also want to see, want to know what's happening around me in the world, you know. So Twitter is the best source to go to. Quick, nice, clean, no nonsense. And then if you had to trade places with one journalist, living or dead, and you would have their career, who would it be? Can I have two? Sure. Okay. I like George Orwell a lot. I read about his life, kind of depressing. That's true. I kind of like Hemingway too, and I like his style of writing, and I think he's adventurous. But at the same time, he's not loyal to his wife. That's not cool. <laughs> But they both had a amazing life stories of traveling the world, and they saw a lot, a lot of things and a lot of history. So That's correct, yeah. And the next question is, what do you bring to the table that makes you a good journalist? Verification, verification, verification. Okay, so you're very rigorous with the facts. I don't want my article to have any problem, especially when you are not in favor of the state. Right, that's very important. And then what is one thing... Sorry, I'm just going to pause for a second until the noise dies down. Uh, it's raining. Oh, that's rain? Wow. <laughs> yeah, we can't stop it. Crazy. Okay, keep going then. What is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self? Doubt. Too much doubt about myself. So you would tell yourself not to doubt yourself too much? Yes. Spending too much time doubting about myself. I should not have done that. I should just keep doing things, you know? Right. But I'm still like that, but it's just less dramatic. Right. I think that's a common problem among journalists, but it gets better over time. And then what is one thing that most people don't know about you? I don't know, but I think I could be a very private person. So there's a lot I that people I, don't know. <laughs> I think so. What's one interesting thing about yourself that you think people don't know? I think I read a lot compared to other people, and I think a lot of people don't know that. Sure. And then what is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media, again, whatever medium... I really like this book uh, on writing. I forgot the name of the writer, but he wrote a few books. But I read his book when I was in the U.S. And as you may know, I became a journalist without proper training. You know, I just become a journalist. And I read his book because I always curious about what my editors and other journalists told me. And I was thinking, like, is it even true? Should I always follow that? Can I break the rule? But I read that book and it just answer a lot of the questions in my head. It's called On Writing or what's it called? Oh, I think it's called On Writing Well. And then the last question is, qualifications aside, if you could not be a journalist, what job would you do? I would be a professor. What would you teach? I don't know. Like, I would teach science, but I don't know much about science and Cambodia is not great about science. I think science is really important for a country like Cambodia. And especially after I went to the U.S. and writing some science story for ABC News, I think like Cambodia should step up in terms of studying, teaching science. Cool. Okay. Well, that's all my questions. Thanks a lot for doing this. Oh, thank you for counting me in. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Bopa Porn, a reporter with Voice of America Khmer. I'll post links to some of Bopa's work and other things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star rating. 
Beyond that, it would also be a huge help if you write out what you like about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Mackay Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, August 23rd. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence.